Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Thursday, December the 29th. We are slouching, if that's the right word, towards 2023. Um, the FT ran this morning uh, 11 charts trying to summarize 2022. Of course, inevitably, there's the map of Ukraine, which remains enormously relevant. But the FT being the FT, a lot of the charts were economics. Uh, in 2022, they remind us the long period of low inflation and ultra-low interest rates ended they exploded in fact uh, the reverse is true uh 2022 has been an awful year for investors in both stocks and bonds which is hard to understand i always thought if, if it was bad for one it was good for the other but what do i know uh they also have an interesting chart the year in words and of course uh some of the phrases or words were particularly popular crypto winter inflation decoupling, polycrisis. Uh, but the one word that was missing and notable for its submission, I think, was the word neoliberalism, which remains a particularly important book, uh, not book, uh, word uh, to make sense of the world. Um, the man who has cornered the market in neoliberal studies and definitions and histories um, is Gary Gerstle, a professor of history at uh, Cambridge University in the United Kingdom, the author of The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. He was on the show earlier this year, but I'm having him back. He's joining us from Cambridge to talk about 2022 in a neoliberal context and the history of neoliberalism in 2022. Uh, Gary, are you surprised that neoliberalism didn't show up in that year of words from the FT? Is it a word that most of us have forgotten? We're not using it anymore? No, I'm, I'm not surprised the word hasn't shown up uh, there. I think one of the questions uh, pertaining to my book is, uh, is whether the term would be accepted or debated. Uh, it was a provocative move on my part to substitute the term neoliberal for the more commonly used term in the United States to describe uh, politics over the last 30 years, that would be conservative. And I have been surprised actually how receptive um, readers, commentators, discussants have been and how much more comfortable they have become using the word neoliberalism to describe the political order that I think dominated the United States and much of the world from the 1980s to the 20 teens. But it had a long way to go, and it, it began from a, a, a very low point. Uh, and so I would have been delighted if it had made it into that top 10 list of the FT. Uh, but uh, as I look across the past year, I'm impressed by how much the word is catching on and, and how much more comfortable people are talking about a neoliberal order and its collapse. So uh, I'm not surprised that it didn't make the list. I am surprised at how much more currency the term has than, say, two or three years ago. And I expect that uh, currency to continue to inflate.
Orwell, um, uh, uh, Orwell, um, Gary reminded us that uh, some words are just degenerate into insults. He, the word he used, of course, was fascism. Is there a danger that neoliberalism will simply become a word used to trash people ideologically? If you don't like what they're saying, you accuse them of, of, of being a neoliberal. Um, how would you define the word? And is the meaning of the word at the end of 2022, is it the same as it was at the beginning of 2022? Uh, I, I think there is that, that danger. I think uh, those who use the term uh, most frequently were those on the left of the political spectrum. And sometimes it was used by people on the left as a, as a term to bash economic policies and other forms of politics that people on the left did not like. If you're suggesting that at times that has been used too loosely and to cover too broad a range of grievances, I, I would agree with that. Part of the project of my book uh, is to rescue the term from that peril and to suggest uh, it is a relevant term, it is an important term. Uh, one of the ways in which I sought to do that was to situate neoliberalism within the longer history of liberalism itself. Uh, there was a curious detachment of those using the term neoliberalism from the, the broader current of liberalism from which it is descended. And part of what I do in my book is to go back to the 18th century and trace the history of liberalism to give us a better understanding of how neoliberalism is similar to and different from the classical liberalism that has been so profound a force in the world and in politics for the last 200 years. So the danger is there, but I, I think um, the uh, if I've been encouraged by the degree to which people understand that it is a term with a particular genealogy and a particular history that has to be attended to, and efforts to uh, use it to just demean and dismiss objectionable, objectionable policies across a broad terrain, uh, that tendency needs to be resisted if the term is to be uh, useful. So I don't pretend to think that the danger of the frivolous use of the term has been eliminated, but uh, I think uh, part of the contribution in my book has been to root this term in a deep and rich history of political thought, which is where it belongs. Who, who invented the term neoliberal? The inventors of the term uh, are usually regarded to be uh, Friedrich von Hayek, the Austrian economist, uh, and a group of like-minded interwar economists um, emerging from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Well, I, I know that they're the sort of ideological foundations of that, but did they use the term neoliberal? Well, Hayek was um, uncomfortable using using the term. Uh, some of the people who arranged the colloque Lipman, a gathering of economists and other thinkers in Paris in 1938, some of those people are the first to coin the term neoliberal. Hayek was uh, always himself uncomfortable uh, with it. What he wanted to do was to call himself a liberal uh, in the classical sense of the term, free, freeing up markets from state control and intervention, thus freeing these, what he regarded as the spontaneity, entrepreneurship, innov innovative char uh, character of capitalism 
from uh, unnecessary and harmful constraints. Uh, so he himself uh, was a reluctant convert to the term neoliberal, uh, and he would have preferred uh, to use the term liberal, as was the case with Milton Friedman, arguably the greatest popularizer of neoliberalism in the American context. Uh, but they could not use the term liberal because it had been, in a sense, stolen by Franklin Roosevelt and the Democrats for a program that was much closer to social democracy than it was to classical liberalism. And the success of that theft bound up with the New Deal and the rise to power of the Democratic Party in the 1930s and 40s, a position they held through the 1960s and 70s. That rise and that political tra trajectory and success was so massive that the term liberal became associated with uh, government controls and direction of uh, the economy, uh, the broad intervention of the government in to, to erect a social welfare state, uh, to, to cushion the effects of untrammeled capitalism, uh, to provide a safety net to people, to put individuals in the position uh, recognizing that they needed assistance in gaining and enjoying their freedom. All this runs contrary to the to the classical meaning of liberalism. Yeah, it's uh, it's um, linguistic irony. There are many, but if you know the the way in which liberal and neoliberal are used in in the American political context are the opposite. Your book has done very well. It was shortlisted. Um, for uh, for the FT Business Book of the Year for 2022. Uh, it deals, of course, with the rise and then the fall of the neoliberal order. In 2022, Gary, um, has the neoliberal order and neoliberalism continued to fall? When you go on the internet, of course, you can find everything on the internet, uh, but you can find articles about both the slow demise of neoliberalism, but then, of course, the idea that neoliberalism is behind the rise of unpleasant political movements like uh, uh, um, the, the new government, uh, the Georgia Maloney government in Italy. So what's 2022 been like for the neoliberals? Well, my book was published in April 2022. I was writing the last chapter still in January 2022. Uh, and one of the events that I had not anticipated, I, I think few of us had anticipated, uh, was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which came in February 2022. And I think um, the uh, that invasion has deepened, on the whole, has, has deepened uh, neoliberalism's crisis. If we think of neoliberalism as a project to free the economy from state regulation and state controls, to let capitalists be capitalists and markets be markets and to push politics away from interference in how economies develop. I think we can begin to see the way in which uh, the Ukraine crisis uh, has uh, distanced um, the world and governments from thinking within a neoliberal frame. Uh, to give you an example, a very concrete example, uh, where do countries get their energy from? During the neoliberal heyday, you, you get it from the most efficient and cheapest producers. You allow those countries best positioned to produce the most oil, petroleum, to do it. It doesn't matter where in the world they are because of the cheap costs of shipping. Uh, and today, in the wake of Ukraine, 
the thinking is is quite different. Uh, states and nations have to think about assuring a secure supply of oil and other essential resources because national security is is involved. One has to protect one's nation and protecting one's nation means securing the flow of essential raw materials for economic life. Uh, and once we enter that frame of, of states beginning to say, we need to assure ourselves of the flow of certain critical raw materials, certain critical manufactured materials like semiconductor chips, then states begin to interfere with the free flow of markets so as to assure that supply. Uh, and Ukraine, of course, is not simply about Ukraine. It's not simply about where is Germany and the rest of Europe got to get its oil and natural gas from. The Ukraine is also about Taiwan. Taiwan is China's Ukraine. And the Ukraine crisis has raised the possibility that at some point, China in the near future may invade Taiwan, retake it. Uh, Taiwan produces an extraordinary uh, disproportionate amount of the world's semiconductor chips. What if the world is suddenly deprived of that source? We got glimmerings of the effects of that uh, in the past year because there was a shortage of chips uh, caused by the disruption of supply chains coming out of the pandemic and out of Ukraine. And so increasingly we see an insistence on the part of governments that markets have to be subordinated to states uh, to the imperatives of national security. And that requires a much more active industrial policy, a much more deep, a much deeper involvement on the part of governments in the affairs of the economy. Uh, and that leads us in a direction very different from what the neoliberal world had authorized and had promised. Uh, so I think we are actually uh, heading, uh, continuing to head away from the neoliberal order. That doesn't mean that the, that neoliberalism can't rebound. Uh, if we look at the importance of, of banks uh, and financialization, if we look at the response of banks, international banks to the Liz Trust fiasco in the UK in September 2022, we can see that certain institutions of the neoliberal order are still intact. Still but, but the, the, trust, the trust example is intriguing, Gary, isn't it? Because in a way, it pitted the banks against neoliberalism. I mean, Trust was or is a hardcore neoliberal, and the banks said, no, you're not going to do this, and they brought it down. Isn't that what really happened? Yeah, no, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating moment. Uh, Liz Truss, uh, put, you're absolutely right. Uh, she is neoliberal to the core. Uh, Britain's problem is that it has not freed markets sufficiently. And that was going to be her project to do. It was quite extraordinary that she could think that after a decade of the Tories being in power, that the only thing separating Britain from prosperity was a true experiment in neoliberalism. That's what she was attempted. And it was an extraordinary event to watch the banks punish her and Britain, and not just her and Britain, but much of the rest of the world uh, for engaging in policies that seem so fantastical and impossible to sustain. And it also brings up another issue, which is, again, really interesting, but also ironic. The, the critics of, of, of neoliberalism always argued against the fetishization of the market. 
And yet it was the market itself that reacted against neoliberal ideology. So hasn't the market come out of this, if anything, in the, the trust case as, as the hero, as, as the grown-up? Well, in that particular instance, uh, it did. Uh, the moment in which we live is a, is a volatile moment, and it would be an error, I think, to mistake, uh, to impute to any one set of actions um, a future that will endure. endure. Uh, it is an amazing event that uh, it was the it was the institutions of the market, um, the financial community that put a kibosh on Liz Truss's plans. Uh, and so you could say, as you have just said, that they are acting against certain neoliberal principles. But of course, an element of neoliberalism is has to do with the financialization of the economy and the extraordinary power of financial institutions. Uh, and if the world is to move away from the neoliberal era, one would expect at some point that those financial institutions themselves will be in some respects reformed. Right. And it's interesting that and that and you and can that, argue it both ways is the financial institutions are the ones bringing down governments now. So I guess you can there there are two different arguments you could make about the trust case. Yeah, and I think both both are relevant and both in a sense are accurate and they speak to the confounding uh, nature of the moment in which we It is a living. confounding moment, Gary. You do a wonderful job in the book talking about the political ramifications, the consequences and causes of neoliberalism. And you distinguish, as you did at the beginning, between FDR's New Deal liberalism and the neoliberalism that came as a reaction. But it seems as if Trumpism and Bidenism have, have merged when it comes to the embrace of the state. You, you talked about the Ukraine, but certainly American policy towards China also reflects a post-neoliberal age. Um, what are the political ramifications of the demise of neoliberalism, both on the left and on the right? Well, I think you're right to po point to certain continuities between Biden and Trump in terms of economic policy. Um, Especially China, and you mentioned chips. We've had Chris Miller on the show. Of course, computer chips are increasingly the, the weapon which Biden is using to bash the Chinese economy. Yes, one of the guiding principles of the neoliberal age was that if you spread free markets far and wide and you, and you injected them into authoritarian societies, that those free markets would compel those societies to move in a democratic direction. This was the promise of opening up China and including China uh, in the WTO and other international neoliberal institutions and organizations. And what China has demonstrated is that there is no necessary correlation between having vigorous markets on the one hand and liberal democracy on the other. And so both parties in the United States now have moved away from a position that both of them held in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century, which is that if you in inject free markets into authoritarian societies, the authoritarianism will dissolve. Almost no one believes that anymore. And that's been a, a, a profound and market change. In that respect, Biden's decision not to remove the tariff barriers that Trump put on China is a very significant uh, indication of a new 
consensus emerging between portions of the Republican and Democratic parties. Uh, I think also if we look at the Biden administration, this has not gotten enough attention, but there are three pieces of legislation, uh, each of which moves away from the neoliberal frame. There's the infrastructure bill, massive investments by the mm-hmm. state and in infrastructure. There's the so-called and uh, intriguingly named Inflation Reduction Act, which yeah, has to do the, uh... reducing inflation and has everything to do with propelling America through expenditure, state expenditures into a green future. Uh, and then there's uh, the decision to reshore chip production, the CHIP Act on American shores. And if we, what I, what I find intriguing is not any of those actions individually, but if we put them together, we can begin to realize that the US now has an industrial policy uh, grounded in the belief that the government, the federal government has a role to play in directing industry investment and making critical decisions about uh, job creation. That was not part of the neoliberal order. That was a time in which these were thought to be decisions best left to the private sphere. So there's been a profound uh, reorientation in the Democratic Party away from the Clinton and I would say Obama era, which signifies moving steadily and significantly away from the neoliberal era. Yeah, it's fascinating. Of course, uh, Blair and Clinton moved away from the state after Reagan and Thatcher. And the same has happened in the reverse within the Republicans and the Democrats. You've talked about the Democrats. We had Pete Weiner on the show yesterday, one of the the most uh, 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 prescient, I think, uh, observers of politics on the right in America. And we talked about how there's now the Republican Party has essentially been taken over by Trumpists and Trumpism, even if Trump himself might be in decline. So we're missing the neoliberal wing or heart of the Republican Party. Now, like you, I'm not a great fan of neoliberalism, but we're missing it. Someone has to be a neoliberal in this system, don't they, Gary? Isn't having an absence of a a neoliberal wing order within the Republican Party is actually unhealthy for American democracy, isn't it? Well, I think the wing is still there. If you, if, if, uh, yeah, but it's who's represented. I I think Mitch Mitch McConnell is represents that tendency in the Republican Party. And, uh, and he is, he is someone deeply committed to, a neoliberal past, present, and and future. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't uh, and I wouldn't underestimate uh, the um, significance of McConnell and his allies. Very wily operator. Uh, he's often thought to be without a set of convictions, but I, I think uh, that is not fair to him. I think he remains a. a uh, a banner carrier for the neoliberal wing of the Republican Party. And while new tendencies are emerging on economic policy, one thinks of Josh Hawley, for example, uh, on uh, antitrust, wanting to break up the monopoly that the social media companies uh, enjoy. Um, and if And also he came out very surprisingly to support the railroad workers in the United States when they were intent on going on strike. The question for that 
populist wing of the Republican Party is this. When push comes to shove, are they really going to limit what capital can do? Is Josh Hawley and his allies, are they really serious about putting limits on what corporations can do and, and, what, and the freedom of markets? Or is this uh, simply a smokescreen and are they going to retreat to the terrain of culture wars? in order to secure their electoral victories uh, if they return to full power, meaning the presidency, the Senate, in addition to the House, will we really see a different kind of Republican Party politics? In other words, will we see populism not simply in the realm of culture, but will we see it in the realm of the economy? I, I, I can frame the question. I can't answer it. You can. You may detect yeah, a fascinating certain, uh, and, and you and may detect a certain in my voice that they will do this, but the Republican Party is itself in turmoil. And as it moves out of the Trump era, as I think it is beginning to do, I think Trump is a much diminished man. I would love to be in on conversations within the Republican Party, ones that they are not sharing publicly about what exactly is the direction in which they are going to move. What Trump has gifted them is tremendous working class support, mostly white working class support, but with some indications that they're peeling off some Latinos and blacks as well. In order to sustain that support, they're going to have to deliver certain economic goods. And when push comes to shove, are they going to be willing to do that? And yeah, that and is- it, And question. it doesn't fit the, the, neoliberal, the yes. neoliberal order to do that. Gary, let's think about 2023. Uh, Marx might've put it something like this. We, we imagine we've left the neoliberal order, but it hasn't left us. Uh, we had Chris Leonard on the show recently, uh, actually yesterday, another great critic of neoliberalism, certainly the financialization of the, the markets. He's the author of The Lords of Easy Money, critique of the Federal Reserve Bank. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Chris thinks that 2023 could still bring, and I'm using, these are my words, no, here's the the final crisis of neoliberalism, uh, the explosion of the world economy, massive interest rate hikes, which will result in significant corporate bankruptcy and the whole house of cards could come collapsing down. So my, my question again is sort of twofold. On the, on the one hand, are we still experiencing the, the tremors of, of neoliberalism? And secondly, could it all still explode in 23? Well, it could certainly explode, uh, and uh, let's hope it doesn't. Uh, catastrophe can be uh, a, a, a wonderful terrain for reinventing politics. Uh, but once you're in a catastrophe, you no longer can control politics. And so anyone who thinks that you can enter a catastrophe with the assurance that you can find your way out of it. Um, yeah, and to be fair to Chris, he, he, he wasn't celebrating. No, I wouldn't think he would have. I don't think he would have made that sort of prediction. But once we're in a catastrophe, it's hard to predict what the outcome is going to be. And you, you, you may get rid of something you wanted to get rid of, but you may end up with something that you really don't want. Uh, I, and uh, so the, uh, I think looking ahead to 2023, the Spike, the, I think the inflation question is, is, is quite crucial. Uh, and there was an interesting moment coming out of the pandemic when the Federal Reserve began to define, redefine its role uh, as not simply the garter of sound monetary policy, but the guardian of the welfare of the entire society. 
And you also heard uh, on the left some interesting writings and speaking about uh, taking a different approach to the Fed, not simply treating it as a capitalist institution that had to be resisted, its powers curtailed, but to try and, um, in a sense, take over the Fed and make it um, not just the guardian of monetary policy, but the guardian of social welfare, which means it would have to include in its priorities other imperatives other than the the soundness of the monetary system. Uh, and uh, Powell himself, I think, uh, was engaged in quite interesting experiments using the Fed in different ways. And then when inflation spiked in 2022, all that fresh thinking about how to manage the Fed and what role it should have in the economy, it vanished. And the Fed resumed its much more traditional role of prior, prioritizing the monetary system above all other considerations. And the question for 2023 is if inflation is brought under control, and there are some signs that the pressures on inflation are easing, is, is will um, that allow a conversation about reforming or reimagining the Fed to continue or resume? And if that occurs, then we might be able to spark a conversation of rethinking the kind of financial system that the world should have. Any political order that achieved the strength and prestige of the neoliberal order, it survives not just on ideology, it survives on uh, developing institutions uh, that become quite powerful and influential. And even when the ideology crashes, and even when an idea system loses its legitimacy, those institutions are still in place, shaping our life. We no longer live in the era of the New Deal order that dominated American politics from the 30s to the 70s, but certain institutions mm. from that order continue to survive and influence American politics. I think we have to apply the same frame to the institutions of the neoliberal order. Uh, and a, a very important question is, what kind of reforms should and can be instituted in the realm of finance to ensure the continuing move away from the national and global economies, away from the neoliberal order. And my hope for 2023 is that inflation will be domesticated enough to the point where that kind of conversation, which had begun during the pandemic, uh, can resume. And I think a resumption of that conversation uh, will be a very, would be a very interesting development uh, we can see industrial policy being reformed. As of yet, we have seen very little effort to reform the financial infrastructure that sustained the neoliberal mm -hmm. Final question, Gary, you, you talked about the euphemism, the domestication of inflation. Any guesses? I don't want you to predict the future, not even you as a great historian can do that. And you know that better than anyone as a historian. Any idea on popular words for 2023? Probably won't be inflation. It's certainly not going to be neoliberalism. What's going to be, what to be a couple of words that will get into political or economic vogue that we're not still comfortable with? I think industrial policy is, was that on your list? Well, this was the FT list. Uh, no, quiet quitting was on the list. Industrial policy, although that's a bit of a throwback to FDR, isn't it? Well, throwback to FDR, yes, but actually that term was not a term used by the New Dealers themselves. It was a term 
imposed by subsequent generations of historians trying to make sense of that. But I would look, uh, industrial policy is not a very colorful term, but it, it uh, uh, de decoupling is an interesting word, but it, it's about um, uh, disintegration and taking things apart. Uh, what I would look for pornographic is, to me. Did you say pornographic? Yeah, sounds a bit. <laughs> Thank this you for that. This is, this uh, is a children's just, show, Gary. You've just enlivened my day. But the uh, I would look for words that begin to talk in positive terms about what will be coming. And I think industrial policy, to continue your metaphor, is not a very sexy term, uh, <laughs> but is uh, but has uh, profound implications for the reimagining of uh, the relationship of states and markets, which is the most important issue to focus on if we are to understand the degree to which we are going to move away from a neoliberal world. And it involves a reassertion of the prerogatives of states over markets, uh, which reverses the valence that was dominant during the neoliberal age. Excellent. That was fun.